Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome to this week's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm your host, Ian Fisher, and I'm delighted to welcome you to another week of college admission and financial aid advice. We're recording this episode on the afternoon of Thursday, May 12th, and whether you're listening live on Voice America or you're a subscriber to the podcast on iTunes, we're very happy to have you. Uh, We got some great news this week about the radio show. We learned that you, our loyal listeners, have made us a top 10 radio show here on the Voice America Network. Thank Thank you so much for your downloads, your questions, your engagement, and thanks for continuing to share this show with friends and neighbors. It's great to hear that so many people around the globe are benefiting from our advice. A little later on today's show, we'll be answering your college finance questions and discussing the process of applying from abroad, whether you're an international student or a U.S. citizen attending an international school. But first, let's turn to some current events. Malia Obama made headlines last month not just for her decision to attend Harvard, but maybe even more importantly, announcing that she would be deferring her attendance for a year. Joining me today to discuss the gap year is my colleague and friend, Kara Courtois. Welcome back to the show, Kara. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So I think the news about Malia um, has probably given the gap year more attention than it had ever received in the past. Um, But for those who are new to the term, can you explain just the basics of what we mean when we say a gap year? Yeah. So, and I never knew about it when I was in high school at all. <laughs> so it was something I learned about later on in college when I yeah, met people. Not something I ever even come. considered. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, so it's, it's really just taking time off to, and, and for those who've been admitted to college, if they want to hold on to that spot, it's asking for an official year of deferral um, from the Dean of Admissions and outlining uh, typically that you won't be attending another institution in that time, that you're taking a, a year off between high school and college to do something else. So, um, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into the details of what that is, but it could be anything from, from uh, volunteering to working to, um, you know, taking care of siblings or getting healthy or whatever it may be, but not matriculating at another school. Gotcha. So when we talk about the gap, we're basically saying there's a gap between the traditional end of 12th grade and the start of what would be 13th grade. Um, So the first year of college, instead of going right into that next semester after a summer, you're taking a full calendar year plus a summer before you start. Yeah. Gotcha. So that sounds great. (laughs) <laughs> get a whole year off. You, you tell a man I don't have to go to school for a year. Um, why would a student consider this? So what is it about taking a gap year that, that might be attractive to a student? Why might that be something that becomes a part of a student's academic plan? Well, I mean, I think for the student who I would usually say tends to be a little bit of an out-of-the-box, you know, thinking thinker, but the trend I've also seen recently is you know, students and families, perhaps because of the, you know, the rise in the cost of tuition, sadly, um, you know, really want to be more thoughtful to how they spend the four years and 
mm. perhaps figuring out a little bit more about what they want to major in. And so, you know, growing up a little bit um, beyond the high school curriculum and the restrictions of maybe not have having, having had too much real-world experience so that, um, you know, finding, some, finding themselves, I think, is part of that, you know, process. And so that entering into their first year of college, that they're a little bit more present and aware um, and maybe take advantage of the opportunities presented to them in the, that four-year experience, especially if, you know, they're, they're paying a nice price for that school, too. So really utilizing the four years instead of wasting the first year. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's one thing that just anecdotally when I was in college, when I interacted with other students who had taken a gap year, whether they were, you know, in my grade or they were younger students that I had met, I felt like they had, there was just a sense of presence that they had or just patience, reflection, something about them that they had taken Mm -hmm. that time to gather themselves. And maybe that's just the kinds of students who tend to want to do gap years are students who are more reflective, or maybe it's that there's some real value in that gap year in getting students to focus on things outside of the traditional English, math, science, social science, world language kind of thing, and and, and look a little bit beyond to what's happening in the world. Um, so if, if I think that this sounds like something that's attractive or interesting to me or, or for my kid, what are some things that I might consider as I plan a gap year? Uh, you know, this reflection sounds great, but where do I start? How do I, how do I even begin? Actually, I think the word plan was probably the most important, you know, word to dwell on in that mm-hmm. question that I think our best piece of advice for any student planning to take a break between high school and college is to have a plan. Definitely. Um, and, you know, to come up with that plan, I mean, there are, there are definitely some structured programs that families can pay for, absolutely. But, you know, for the most part, I'd say, I would say a lot of students will get a great deal out of making a plan based off of their inherent interests that they want to pursue. So I often think of, you know, an art student who... Um, maybe hasn't had the time outside of a very rigorous high school curriculum to maybe pursue a real project that they want or a budding entrepreneur, um, which recently I had uh, this year worked with a student who really had this project itching at him that was really a business, like a small business um, in kind of a computer science realm. And Mm -hmm. he knew when he got to college, like high school, he probably wasn't going to have the time um, to pay attention to that in the way that he wanted to to do it well. So having a plan and working with a mentor, be it, you know, probably a teacher that the student is close with could be one person to start brainstorming with, obviously having your parents, you know, on board. But, you know, a plan for, I always encourage students, you know, look at the whole year from beginning mm-hmm. to end. If the summer is going to be similar to the summers after other years of high school, you know, maybe it's working with your friends at the beach or, you know, a mixture of family vacation and, and a part-time job or whatever it may be. But then come September, if most of your friends might be going off to college, what's your plan? Are you going to stay at home and work part-time or are you doing an internship? Or are you going away? What is it? And mapping it out uh, month by month for sure to take you through the entire 12 months. That, yeah, that's I, that's such great advice. And I think that you know, making sure that you've got that month by month plan so that if something doesn't go according to plan, you know, you say, all right, in August, I'm going to get a job. 
Um, you know, if that doesn't happen, uh, then what's your sort of fallback? How are you going to make sure that you're using the time productively? Um, especially if the next constructive thing that you've scheduled doesn't happen until January, you know, making sure that, that you use that time effectively, I think can be really, really useful. Um, Uh are there other ways that you would encourage students to think about the gap year to make it effective? Like other sort of thoughts that students should bring with them in order to find success within the the context of their gap year? I mean, I think it really depends on the student and, you know, what I always start off the conversation is, you know, what would you do with sort of a free year? What would be the sort of best case scenario result? Do you want to learn a new language? Do you want to feel comfortable, you know, living away from your parents and kind of being able to figure things out on your own? Um, do you want to just take a year off and ski, <laughs> you know, and maybe work part-time and help people? you want to volunteer, you know, and, like, what's the, uh, you know, kind of the baseline goal, um, you know, that you want to think of, and then kind of pivot off of that, um, you know, through the different options that could present themselves, but really trying to find someone who can mentor you through that, who knows you well, uh, both from a perspective of what you can achieve but also, what are the real, you know, what's realistic? You need someone who keeps you accountable. And would you be better off with structure or less structure? So trying to figure those pieces out, too. Yeah, and it's really cool to think about these, the gap year as, as even having two semesters, as saying that there are two different yeah. things that you're going to do. Um, I told you before the show, I actually uh, texted a bunch of my friends from college uh, and just said, did any of you take a gap year? And what did you do? And you know, one of my friends who now works for Microsoft, who's really into coding um, and grew up in Seattle, I think he decided, you know, before going to read uh, as a freshman, he wanted to take time off adventuring. And so he spent the summer in northern Alaska working for a bush pilot company, essentially off the grid. Um, and then mm-hmm. he spent, you know, the winter skiing in Jackson Hole and, and paying for that by working at a restaurant. And so he got some real world, world experience some recreational experience, some adventure experience. And that stuff is all very different from what he does on a daily basis professionally and what he did as a student before that gap year. So it really is an opportunity to pause and and try something Uh a little bit different. Yeah, and maybe get your sillies out, which is what (laughs) I say to some students, you know, that you need to just, you know, just kind of burn off any sense of, I don't want to be restricted you know, and sometimes yeah. college can be a little bit of a bubble, you know. Um, I feel like before I studied abroad my junior year, I certainly fell into that. This is kind of a bubble. And I think growing up in New York, going to school in the Midwest, I loved the bubble. I thought it was great. It allowed me to study and focus. But then pushing the boundaries out for study abroad is similar. And I think the gap year just allows students to grow up a little bit more quickly, because usually right after high school. Yeah, and I think mentioning study abroad in this context, you know, it's when we talk about a gap year, we almost always talk about the year between 12th grade and freshman year. But um, one of my very close friends took a gap year before his junior and senior year of college. He just took a year uh-huh. off and and used that to do his own study abroad um, and, and traveled to Russia. He had Russian um, ancestry and was just very interested in learning about Russia for an entire year. Uh-huh. Um, and so the gap year doesn't always have to be in that first year you still have time to, you know, it feels like once you start college, you can't interrupt it. Um, right. But he, I think, was more successful because of that pause he was able to take in his mm-hmm. education. Yeah, um, I actually have two nephews who just did that. 
So absolutely. I think it's sometimes a little bit harder once you're in that momentum, but absolutely. I mean, I think whatever's needed to help you be the best student, you know, before you graduate. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, the mechanics of taking the gap year as it pertains to admission. Um, you know, when you decide that you want to take a gap year and you've developed a plan, it, how does that affect your applications to college? How does it affect the relationship that you have with a college you maybe have decided to attend? What sort of is are the steps that you might take um, to make sure that you still, you know, you still have the college options that you want? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think most importantly is for most students, they should still be applying in senior year, the fall of senior year to their colleges so that they have some options in case something changes and either they decide not to do the gap year or something doesn't allow them to do it. But then they always have to make sure that they request a deferral from whatever college they've decided that a year after, you know, from their graduation time that they want to attend there, they have to accept one of those colleges by May 1st of the senior year and they need to request uh, of the dean of admissions or the admissions office um, for a formal deferral and put that in writing. And something to keep in mind that I recently um, had read about is that not all um, colleges will, you know, allow for a deferral. My experience was more that private schools were very happy with it for all the reasons we've kind of stated, you know, students grow up, they're more present, and they're more likely to graduate on time. Um, But that some state universities do not grant a deferral. So just to not guarantee, you know, be aware that you do need to request that and you might want to ask if you're contemplating that in the senior year before you've even applied, just find out, do they allow for deferrals? Yeah, and, and it's a good idea just to have um, a heads up about what that policy looks like and, and how that might mm-hmm. affect you know where it is that you decide to uh, deposit. Some students ask me, you know, I'm thinking about doing a gap year. Should I tell the admissions office but when I, at the time that I'm applying? Um, is there any incentive to telling admissions office when you're applying versus at the time that you actually make your enrollment? Should you always wait until the time you make your decision and enroll? Um, how would I negotiate that sort of timeline? I would do it somewhere in the middle. I usually wouldn't recommend ever for a student to do it in the application process itself, only because, you know, while admissions counselors are re- reviewing files, they're always keeping in mind the fact that somebody really wants that seat right now and right. if they you know if the student is implying a gap year well maybe I could save that seat for someone else and the student could always reapply next year um, you know or we could put them on the wait list while they figure things out so I would encourage just to go into the process applying as if you're going to school the next year and or the next fall and that um, then find out before you've actually deposited at a school what their process is for requesting a deferral, you know, what language should you put in the letter, connecting usually with your area representative who covers the admissions office uh, representative who covers your high school. Good. I think that that's great. Now, you know, you wrote an article um, uh, for Student Universe just a couple of weeks ago about the gap year. And, um, you know, I would encourage our listeners to dig that up because there's some really great information in there and, and a great perspective from Kara. Um, but you mentioned at one point that some students might want to take a gap year in order to try and get into a more selective college the next fall. Um, 
Can you talk a little bit about why that maybe isn't the best approach for students um, in terms of how to use that time off uh, as, a, as a way to reapply and get in somewhere maybe they didn't get in or somewhere more selective? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's 100% across the board that, you know, it's not necessarily going to help them in the process. I, th- I personally think a gap year for any student who plans it well and is ready for it and wants it is going to be a great, you know, end result for, you know, their ability to grow up and reflect on what they want, in which case maybe they'll write a stronger, um, more compelling college application, you know, the essays and, and the overall application. But um, usually there's no new academic information. So right. if you had grades that were, you know, not reflective of your best strengths at that time when you originally applied or you know, uh, you're not bringing to the table anything new, test scores, um, you know, and just a final transcript that is really shining <laughs> or outshining what you could have done previously, probably nothing's going to change um, in the grand scheme of things. So I just would encourage students not to do gap year for that pur- purpose also because usually that's not the mindset that I would encourage, you know, a student to go into a gap year because... It sounds like they're sort of playing games with the whole process and maybe are just not going to have a great gap year either, you know, and and sort of um, not really be starting off the whole experience in the best light. Right. I mean, we talk about it as at the beginning, the point is sort of to reflect and take time and be away from this. And if you spend the fall of your gap year putting applications back together um, and then the the spring being nervous to try and hear about admissions decisions that sort of interrupts a lot of that opportunity for for personal reflection yeah. and growth. Um, and by the time you write that college essay, you've actually only had like two or three months separate from when you graduated, so nothing really big has happened at that point. You haven't had exactly. a full solid year. Exactly. So as always, be thoughtful. Um, be present, really think about what you're trying to get out of anything that you're, you're choosing. Um, that's always, I think, something I take away from all my conversations with you, Kara. So uh, thank you very much for your time and your thoughtfulness as always. Um, we'll, talk, we'll talk soon. Thanks for having me, Ian. All right, folks, after the break, we'll be back uh, and taking this conversation overseas. So stick around. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? 
Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Um, I mentioned in the introduction to today's episode that we recently learned we're a top 10 show here on Voice America, which is very exciting. We also learned that we're listened to in over 810 different cities worldwide. I don't even know if I could name 810 different cities, um, but that doesn't stop my excitement at considering just how diverse our listenership is. Um, Our next guest is Steve Brennan, a college coach, educator, and former admissions officer at a number of different institutions from all over the country. It's great great to have you on the show, Steve. Thanks, Ian. Good to be here. So, Steve, we were talking before the show, and you were the coordinator of international admission at Occidental College in Los Angeles, which I actually had the pleasure of visiting just a couple days ago. Um, So you've seen a lot of applications from abroad. Um, Was there a particular part of the world that you were responsible for uh, when you were reading international applications? Um, Anything that you're more familiar with? Sure. So um, in my role at Oxy, I was coordinating all of the international application admission outreach efforts. And uh, so I I got to see where they'd all come from. It was interesting. We had a lot from Bulgaria and Romania, (laughs) um, which we never traveled to. I don't know how that pipeline started. No one institutionally kind of knew how that happened, but it was great reading those applications. Um, And and those compared to where we would travel and recruit a lot in East Asia, just given our location in L.A. and L.A. being a really international city and and a large uh, population of of, uh, Asian immigrants, of course, from Korea and Japan and in uh, Southeast Asia, that was a natural fit for us. Um, we would get smaller numbers from Brazil and Latin America every year. And just seeing the differences in the transcripts and, and the student preparation and, and how applications were presented from those different regions was, was really interesting. And of course, we also had the one-off from, you know, lots from Canada, Australia, as you would expect, but the one-off from, you know, Sweden or Estonia or, you know, that would be interesting. It was never a dull moment, that's for sure. Yeah, we got, I, I used to read uh, applications from Asia at Reed, and I, we got a Mongolian once who was like a national champion ballroom dancer who sent videos along with his app. It was, I had no idea where that kid came from. It was unbelievable. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's great. And that's what's, I think, really exciting about um, international admissions, uh, at least on the admissions side of the desk. I, I think what's exciting for students who are applying from abroad is that they've got a lot of choice. Um, they might be looking at school in their home country or somewhere in the UK or, or somewhere in the US. Um, what are some of the big differences between American style of education and education that, that you can get abroad in, in other countries? Sure. Um, one of the things that we used to comment on a lot and joke about was the difference in letters of recommendation. 
that was that was one of my favorite things was just reading out paragraphs of a letter of recommendation from an international kid who often sounded like oh you know he's okay or she's all right you know right. versus an American letter of recommendation that was that was inevitably almost inevitably glowing right um, so as far as the preparation goes though we would often see that a student coming from an international context usually had less choice in terms of electives in their secondary mm. school or their high school. So all those kids from Bulgaria, I didn't have to count up the units. I, I knew I knew that they had eight required courses and they had to take them every year and there was less grade inflation so that there was some nuance in, in terms of how those applications were were reviewed. And that's pretty standard from an international context. You know, um, kids applying from India, the calendar was different, but they had less choice. They had less uh, fewer opportunities for electives. Um, they, they might have an elective as far as which foreign language they took, but they had to take two foreign languages, English and one other. Um, and, and that was pretty standard. One of the biggest differences in terms of preparation non-academically was how extracurriculars are viewed or not viewed, <laughs> de-emphasized right. in, in international context. It would be rare to see a student with a robust extracurricular resume like one we would expect from a domestic kid. Um, that was that was one of the biggest differences, Ian. Yeah, and that's something that I see even in conversations with, um, you know, students who are living in the U.S. whose parents were educated internationally is they are introduced to this concept of being involved in high school and the importance of the whole person in holistic admissions, which is not something that really plays a big role in international admissions. Um, and so that's that's one of the big, I mean, one of the significant differences, I think, in in preparing um, for admission. Um, well, now, that's, that's right. If I can just say something about that. Sure. I think that in most other parts of the world, to get into tertiary education, to get into college or university level studies in the rest of the world, you take a test, you get a score, and then here's a list of schools you can go to. And the right. fact that here in the U.S., there is such an uh, emphasis on the non-objective criteria uh, I think that's that's where that comes from, and I think you're exactly right. For immigrants, for for newcomers to this country, it's something that's foreign to them. Yep, definitely, and and I think that that also underscores some of the major differences in just the experience of being a student in higher education in the U.S. versus abroad. You know, the things that they are looking for in an admission office in the U.S. versus the U.K., for example, tells you a little bit about what the academic experience would be. And if I'm a student that's considering U.K. versus U.S., um, what are some of the major differences in the actual experience of international education versus what we would call domestic education in the U.S.? Sure, sure. So um, in the U.K., well, I should say in England and Wales, because it's different in Scotland, but in England and Wales, um, the approach to a bachelor's degree is narrower and perhaps deeper than what we're used to. Um, In Scotland, it would feel familiar to a student looking at the U.S. or Canada in that it's a four-year bachelor's program and that there's a pretty robust core curriculum. That is, that students will take courses in a breadth of academic disciplines and not just focus on your major. If you're doing philosophy at uh, Bristol in England, you know what? You've got three years of philosophy. You'll have a year of English and maybe one other electives, one or two other electives, but it's pretty, it's pretty narrowly focused, and it is a three-year bachelor's. So that's the difference. Um, students who are perhaps less sure about their commitment to their intended major, students who want to do a double major or do some exploration academically, 
might find that that three-year bachelor's program is not a great fit. Students who are super focused know what they want, want to get in and get out, get that professional training perhaps. The UK can be a great fit, and it's, you know, it's faster. You can get into the workforce sooner, so there's, there's advantages to both, but I think it is important. As always, you know, we talk to a college coach about knowing yourself and, and starting with who you are versus what the institutions are, and I think knowing yourself and think, thinking about which one is going to be the right fit, I think is a, good, is a great place to start. Gotcha. That's that's really really helpful. Um, and so you know, for our show today, I mean, we we probably we have a lot of different audiences. You know, probably a lot of domestic students, maybe some who are considering going abroad. But when we talk about different populations of people who apply from abroad, there are a lot of different ways to define an international student. Um, what are some of the the ways that admissions, maybe at Occidental or other places that you've worked? Would, cons- would think about an international student or an, a student with international experience? Sure. Um, and, and I love that question because it's not binary. It, it, it's binary in the sense that you are a U.S. citizen or not, of course, um, or permanent resident, I should say. Um, and that affects financial aid and, and some other things. But, but as far as how the application is viewed, if I'm an American citizen and my parents have been living in Copenhagen for the last five years all through my high school experience, and I've been at the American school there, um, I am going to be viewed most likely in most admission offices by the international admissions coordinator. Your application will come in. You'll get coded as having studied overseas. It'll come to me or whoever that international admissions coordinator is. And honestly, that's, that's kind of a good spot to be in in terms of the admissions pool because the international person usually is a little more senior and usually has a little more discretion as far as who they take and how they can advocate for a student versus someone who is uh, perhaps a a junior member of staff. So even if you are an American and you're applying from an American school, if it's overseas and you've had that experience, you're going to be looked at a little bit differently and your experience will be considered differently, that you will be you will be bringing, excuse me, a different perspective to the class, that international perspective. You will see things differently. And the thinking is that you will enrich the class, enrich the student body in a way that a kid who maybe didn't have that experience, who went to the buff Jesuit in Indy, is not going to have. Um, so right. I, think, I think that's one thing. Even if you are coded or designated American, you still have that international experience and, and your application will be viewed differently. And, and I often describe that as being sort of the best of both worlds because you come at the same cost to the institution as a student who lives in Alabama or Florida or Arizona, but you bring with you a kind of perspective that a student who's lived in the U.S. their whole lives maybe doesn't have as much of. And so it's really just an opportunity to reflect some differences in your experience without coming at, at further cost to the institution because you qualify for federal financial aid. Um, and I think you were about to talk about sort of the second group of what we would call international students. Um, sure. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and those are obviously kids who are nationals of another country, have spent their whole educational experience in South Africa and are South African citizens and just want to have that undergraduate experience in the U.S. And so they're applying for admission here. Um, and obviously those are, you know, international students as well. And, and colleges love to see those too because they can count them in the numbers. Right, an, an American kid who goes to, um, you know, uh, the American School in Seoul, for example. When I do my annual report as an admissions dean, I count him as American. I don't count him as international. And so, you know, a, a student who's coming who is Korean national or Chinese or Japanese or whatever it might be from the Seoul American School, 
um, will be counted as international. And, uh, you know, I like, I like those numbers. I like to look diverse. I like to have an international population, especially for the young people applying to college now. Almost all of them are interested in international exposure in some sense. And if that's something that I can talk about, and there are some colleges who really pride themselves on this, who use their internationalism as a differentiator in the market. And right. if I'm able to talk about that, that, that can make my profile look more appealing. So. And, you know, there's a, there's a third group of students that isn't applying from abroad but still has international status, which would be citizens of non-U.S. countries that live here and are educated here. Um, so they're not permanent residents, they're not U.S. citizens, but they attend school in the U.S. So the mechanics of their application will be very similar, but the financial aid status will be different in terms of how the application is read and decisioned uh, depending on a, a school's financial aid policies towards that's international students. That's right. That's right. And it, and it depends, of course, greatly on when they came. If they came as a senior and they, they came from Canada and English-speaking Canada, and obviously, you know, there's not going to be a language issue there. There's, it, it might be a little uh, more seamless than if they came from, say, uh, India or Pakistan or, or a country where English um, wasn't the language of instruction in their home country, or perhaps they're still adjusting culturally to what life is like in the U.S. as a senior. That can be a, that can be a rougher transition, and depending on their um, experience, they might have a couple of other steps to go through in the application process. Gotcha. So let's let's talk a little bit about the application process. We've got a lot of great admissions information back in the archives from all of the dozens of shows that we've done over the the last few months. Um, but I want to talk just a little bit about you know, how students who are applying from abroad might approach the timeline or the process a little bit differently. Um, let's start with those U.S. citizens who are educated outside of the country. How does their application process look different from, you know, their fellow American citizens who are ed- educated in domestically here in the U.S.? It, the, the biggest thing is the time schedule. Well, it depends a little bit, Ian, on what their educational, their current educational environment is. Okay. If they are in an American school, it's very likely that they know the drill, right? They're going to have the deadlines. They're going to know how the American application process works. They're going to be able to help them hit the, hit the milepost, as it were, um, to, to be on track of things. If they are in a national school, if they're not just, you know, streamlined like any other student in, in Japan or Bolivia or wherever they might be, they will have to be more proactive and absolutely stay on top of their deadlines. And things take longer. And it's good to know that and to plan ahead for that. Um, I was at a recent workshop uh, at a professional conference and, and learned that last year, for some unknown reasons, there was a tremendous delay up to, up to three or four months in getting SAT scores reported for students who were living overseas. Wow. And so that's something, you know, you got to plan ahead for those kinds of things and anticipate and build into your schedule, you know, the, the, the chance that things can go wrong and give yourself time to recover for those. There's there's also the matter of of college research, and if you you know if you're living overseas, it's very hard for you to just stop in and do a college visit, right? You have to be really proactive in in planning travel to be able to visit college campuses, e- even if that's feasible uh, for you. So that might happen around the summers. You might not necessarily get to see a school during its academic session, and so beginning a little bit earlier, even in the research process. I think is something that um, that American citizens abroad should really think about um, as they're engaging with this process. Um, what about non-U.S. citizens who are educated abroad? How do how do they sort of ensure that the application they're putting together is going to be competitive, and how do they manage this process? Sure, and you know we talked earlier about how the 
extracurricular piece plays a different role for international students. It's, it's often just not part of their consciousness. It's not something that's going to be included in the application or look the same, and that's fine. Admission officers understand that. You don't have the opportunity to have done the kinds of things that many American students would have done. Don't worry about that piece. What you, what you uh, ought to focus on is putting together uh, a robust application with strong support from your school, um, good letters of recommendation, and <laughs> with the understanding of, you know, like we talked about before, they, right. they will likely be more candid. But, but still, you know, give a sense of your academic, intellectual, uh, and personal interests and capacities. Um, it's, it's going to be important that you give yourself time to write the essays a couple of times, write some drafts of those, give yourself some practice there, and make sure that with the research piece, you're finding schools that are going to be a good fit for what you want to do. It would often be the case that we would get applications in Oxy that felt, frankly, a little scattershot, that felt like they were applying to every school they could find, and they weren't a great fit for us because they wanted engineering, for example. Oxy didn't have engineering, right? Um, and, and so doing your research and making sure your application is on point and consistent for your target school will be really helpful for your chances as well. Right. And so right after Steve Jobs died, we actually saw a huge boost in our international applications because of Steve Jobs and his um, biography mentioning that he had attended Reed College and dropped out of Reed College. And so we saw all of these students who applied because they heard that that's where Steve Jobs had gone to school and they wanted to study business or engineering, which are not majors that we offered to Steve Jobs or anybody else. And so, you know, understanding the variation in different types of educational experiences in the U.S., and doing your research accordingly, I think, is a real important part of applying from abroad as well. Um, any final tips that you might have uh, for students as they're thinking about this process just in the last last few seconds of the segment, Steve? Sure. You know, planning ahead is really important and being proactive with your deadlines. Uh, get an Excel spreadsheet or a Google Calendar document, whatever works for you, and just map out when those targets are, when those deadlines are. And back up from that, you know, if your deadline is January 1st, plan a month in advance to have everything in. Um, if you are an international student, you will often have to have a COF, a certificate of finances, indicating how you're going to pay for it to get a, to get a visa to study here in the U.S. So those things take time. Make sure you're aware of what the requirements are. Put them all in one place and, and tick them off as you go. Just be really organized. That's, that would be my biggest piece of advice. And if, if English is not your first language or language of instruction, you may also want to take the TOEFL exam or the IELTS, which will also demonstrate your knowledge of English, um, which is important for, for American schools as well. Um, thanks a lot for joining me today, Steve. Always a pleasure. Uh, look forward to connecting with you soon. Pleasure is mine. Thanks, Ian. All right. Aloha. All right, folks. When we come back, we'll be answering your questions about financial aid. So don't touch that radio dial. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. 
Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvin Vora weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you are a listener with questions about any of the topics we discuss during any episode of the show, any of our segments, or if there's something we haven't covered that you'd love to know more about, please let us know. Um, you can send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com to share your questions and ideas. And we're going to be fielding some of those questions here now. Um, my next guest, Kathy Ruby, is a former financial aid officer at St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota. And she never fails to remind me, an alumna of Carleton College, also <laughs> in Northfield, Minnesota. Welcome back to the show, Kathy. Hi, Ian. Good to be here. It's great to have you. So we've got some great questions for you. Are you ready? Yes, I am ready. All right. You'll be graded on breadth and depth, but not speed. Um, all right. Excellent. You should be graded at all, but we'll see. So Bring the first on. question comes from Irene, who's asks a very simple question. Does a high need for financial aid hinder acceptance? Oh, that's a great question. That's a great question. Um, So what Irene is actually asking about is a policy called need sensitivity, or you'll also hear it referred to as a college being need aware. Um, And the opposite of that is need blind. So Mm -hmm. there's a bunch of terms for you to to hang on to. So when a college is need sensitive or need aware, what that means is a student's ability to pay may be considered among all the other things that are also considered. in deciding whether or not to admit that student. So a wealthy student might be more likely to get in if a college is needing revenue, um, and a a high-need student might be less likely to get in, all other things being equal. But let's let's talk about that for a sec. And and the first thing I want to make sure to convey is this, this doesn't happen broadly. This definitely doesn't happen in every college. Um, You know, there are a few colleges, the really wealthy 
um, selective ones who will say right up front on their website, you know, we're need blind. And then we also meet the full need of all students who are admitted. And that means that once they establish what your need is, they assess your ability to pay, they're going to give you a great package and, and meet your need fully. Um, but, and then the vast majority of colleges are actually also need-blind in admission, but they don't make any promises about meeting your need. So they may admit whoever they want to admit, but then they don't necessarily make it affordable for you. Um, they just let you figure it out from there. So most public institutions and many private institutions fall into that category, which is they're not going to look at your ability to pay at all, um, but they, they may not have enough money to make it affordable for you to attend. Right. And I, I think this is really important, really important, because when we talk about the concept of need blind and admissions, I think a lot of people hold that up as the gold standard. But right. need blindness in and of itself is not an indication that that college is sort of useful for every single student who applies. You need to also look at their policy towards meeting demonstrated need. So it's right. need blindness plus meaningful need that, that is essentially the gold standard, which means it doesn't matter what you can pay. We're going to make sure that you can attend here. Um, and then there are schools that are need aware, right? You mentioned need sensitive. What's sort of yeah. the definition of the, the need awareness in the admissions process? So the schools that are need aware, and this is really just some private colleges um, who maybe need aware, and, and these tend to be colleges who they're trying to meet full need for all students who are admitted. And so they have to have a way to control their financial aid budget because they don't have as many resources as those really wealthy institutions that are need blind and meet full need. Um, and so they they use need sensitivity as a way to control their financial aid budget. And then there are also some private colleges who are just need aware because they don't want to necessarily admit a whole bunch of students that they're not going to be able to fund in an appropriate way. Even if they're not promising to meet full need, they, they want to make sure they're not sending, you know, admitting too many people and then not making it reasonably affordable for them. So for right. those schools that are need aware, and it is okay to ask, I mean, if you're visiting a college, you can certainly ask an admissions person, you know, are you need aware um, in the admission process? Most colleges aren't going to declare it on their website, um, but they're, they're generally willing to answer if you ask that question. But when they're need aware, they're not, a, they're not need aware across the entire pool. So if you're a really strong candidate for a college, you may not even be looked at under a need-aware policy. They may want you so badly for all the other things you've done relative to their applicant pool that they're not going to care how much financial aid you need. Um, but then if you're in the lower, I'm going to say 10 to 20% maybe of an applicant pool, um, you know, the students who are maybe are more borderline admissible, um, that's where a college might start to get need-aware, and that's where it may impact you. So if right. it's a reach school... Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, I worked at Reed College, which is need aware and meets mm -hmm. 100% of demonstrated need. And you can't mm -hmm. meet 100% of demonstrated need for every student and be need blind unless you have the money to be able to back that up, which we didn't have. And right. so we had to tell students we're need aware, but practically speaking, that need awareness was executed around the, around the margins. So right. it was, you know, sort of the, the pool of students who were 
on the borderline between getting in and getting out was really the case where the financial aid made a big difference. Um, we had a huge number, per- percentage of students that were Pell eligible. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, those are students that obviously don't get a lot, uh, don't have a lot to bring to the, the table in terms of finances, but we had, you know, 15 to 20% of our student body were Pell eligible, and we were able to meet the full need for those students. So mm-hmm. need awareness is not always a bad thing, um, but it can, you know, it can hinder acceptance, I think, in some yeah. cases. I mean, right? to answer the question she's asked, it can, but certainly not in all cl- cases. And if you've got a well-shaped list when you're applying to schools where you've got schools that you know you're going to get into and that you're a good, strong candidate for, then you probably won't be impacted. So, um, And the other piece of this is don't, nec- don't try to game the system by saying you don't need financial aid. Um, and then trying to come back later and say that you do, because that usually doesn't work. Um, colleges do pay attention if you ask, answer that question, if they're being need aware. Um, mm-hmm. Also good to know that just needing financial aid in itself doesn't necessarily cause the problem. It's how much financial aid you might need. So um, if you need aid, if you feel like your family needs aid, you should definitely be applying for it and telling the college you plan to. That's great. Great advice. Um, and I think that the, you know, the big takeaway for me is ask a lot of questions of the colleges you're considering to see what sure. their policies are here. Um, this is sort of a related question. It comes from Corinne. And she says, how do we appeal a financial aid award? And um, that's, that's a question I think that might come up in a situation like this, right? You get into a school, but maybe they don't meet the full demonstrated mm-hmm. need or the need that you think you have, and you want to appeal that award. So, so how do you appeal a financial aid award from a school that's admitted you? Yeah, and that's, that's actually such a popular topic. We've actually done two different shows on that. Um, so if you go back to our archives, um, March 17th, we talked about how to appeal a financial aid package based on your family's financial circumstances, either something that's changed or um, something that you feel wasn't represented well in the applications that you've submitted. Um, So that we talk about on March 17th. And then on March 24th, we did a show about negotiation, which has more to do with merit scholarships and and comparing awards um, and using better awards to get better money from other schools. Now, a lot of those kinds of things happen prior to the May 1st deposit date. But I do want to make sure to convey that if your family has a financial circumstance and something that's changed, you can appeal a financial aid award at any time during the year. Um, most financial aid offices will consider those at any time. So um, definitely, Corinne, go back and listen to those shows, and we'll really give you some detailed advice about how to do that. That's that's terrific. And So far, I feel like these questions are talking a lot about need-based financial aid. And, and it looks like we've got a question here from Christine on um, more on merit aid. So she asks, uh, Christine asks, is there a resource that tells which schools give financial aid for what purposes and who is likely to offer merit, full tuition scholarships, et cetera? Um, there are lots of schools, money debt, money and debt matters, um, especially if a student wants to go to graduate school later on. So what's a resource for figuring out what kind of non-need-based scholarships might be available at schools? Yes. So I think the best resource is the college itself. So really um, dig into the college's website, see what they say about first-year merit scholarships. And sometimes that the, the way I've found that information the most is not necessarily in the financial aid office website. Sometimes within the financial aid office website, if you click on most colleges have a topic that says types of aid, 
and then there's a scholarship section. And sometimes colleges will even talk about scholarships on their admissions website. So you got to kind of search both both departments to see what you can find. This is another area where you can ask a college, you know, do you offer merit scholarships? And can you tell me what's the profile of students who might receive them? Mm-hmm. Um, we also like the website, the College Board's website, um, Big Future, because um, you can look up any college and you can get all kinds of great information about how selective they are, what the profile is of students who are admitted there, um, and then they do have some summary data about their financial aid programs available as well. And this is all based on survey information that colleges complete every year. Gotcha. Um, and then there's mm-hmm. also a, a sense in which just sort of the way you choose the schools to which you apply can make a difference in terms of your your eligibility for merit scholarships, potentially. Right. right? Absolutely. So if your goal is to get a full tuition scholarship, which are not as common as you think, but right. um, if your goal is to get as much scholarship money as possible, um, you really want to be applying to colleges where you're a very strong student, you know, that you're in the top quartile or even higher than that, you know, the top 10%, top 5%. So in other words, a school that really wants you to enroll is the one who's most likely to give you the best money. So you have to be able to open up your list to not just the selective schools that everybody's heard about and everybody wants to go to, but think about schools that maybe aren't as widely known, um, and where you're a real standout for them, because that's where you're most likely to get the best money. Gotcha. Perfect. Um, let's move on to another question. Looks like we've got time for one more here. Um, and this is a, a sort of a specific question um, from Maureen. Maureen is wondering, is there financial aid specifically for twins or students with learning disabilities or children of teachers? I'm trying to start researching this. Are there websites you'd recommend with two to put through college at the same time? Every little bit helps. I totally feel your pain, Maureen. I can understand that. Uh, And she says, thank you in advance for your answer, Kathy. All right. Well, so there's no one place to go, but it sounds like Maureen's going to have a lot to do for the next next couple years. And um, I do want to point out the college coach, the blog, because one of my colleagues had twins go through this and has written a series of blog entries about that. But anyway, um, twins. Twins can be a good thing from a need-based financial aid perspective because your contribution is divided between the two kids. So definitely apply for need-based financial aid. Um, Searching for scholarships really is a research project. The website that we like best, the general website, would be scholarships.com when you're searching for private scholarships. Um, it's one of those search tools where you build a profile and they'll ask about things like, are you, you a twin? Do you have learning disabilities? All those kinds of things. Um, <clears throat> and then they'll post possible scholarship sources for you to consider. Um, so I would also, I also encourage families to look locally. So think through all of the organizations you interact with. When I worked at a college, most of what I saw kids bring in in private scholarships were from organizations they were somehow affiliated with. So Maureen, you could look into your professional associations, your employer, your union, um, support groups for kids with learning disabilities, all those different kinds of organizations. Um, And then I actually do have, I know we don't have much time, but I do have a couple of websites for students with learning disabilities. Um, One is collegeacademicsupport.com. So collegeacademicsupport.com and then click on the scholarship section. You can also go to disability.gov, 
which is actually a federal government website, and check out their guide to student financial aid. And there's actually a section titled, Are There Scholarships Specifically for Students with Disabilities? And then they go through all the different kinds of disabilities and organizations that are out there. Awesome. That is so helpful, Kathy. I didn't know there were so many scholarships out there. Thank you for being the expert on this stuff and for sharing all that great expertise with our listeners. Happy to help you and have a great, have a great evening. Thank you. Next week, we'll talk all about applying to the UCs as a community college transfer. We'll be fielding more of your listener questions, this time on admissions topics, and we'll discuss the considerations in paying for college expenses out of pocket. So have a wonderful weekend wherever you are. We'll see you next week when Beth Heaton gets back in the hosting chair. Uh, Enjoy your weekend. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.